Welcome. I hope you enjoy the conversation you're about to see between me and another comedian about religion and comedy. These are conversations I'm calling Disorganized Religion. God bless. And for those atheists out there, may nothing await you after this life. Let's do it, baby. Hey, nerds. Welcome to another edition of Disorganized Religion. I am your host, Seth Lawrence, as always. And this week, I am uh, blessed to be joined by the voice of a generation, a true unsung hero and a of stand-up comedy and sung hero. Really, you can find and him almost him. everywhere. You just might not know that you can find him everywhere. The mighty Liam McEnany. Thank you, Liam. Voice of a generation joining me today. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. That's a, that's a very humbling. What calling me a voice of a generation? Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, it was totally unexpected. Um, right. Frankly, I wish you wouldn't keep calling me that. But you know, you, you do you, Seth. I can't. Uh... I mean, I just feel some people deserve the accolades they've earned. And Liam, <laughs> you have earned to be the voice of a generation. That is true. I don't know. I don't know which generation exactly, but at least one of them. I would say it would probably be the Olmecs. Uh, the, the old Mechs? Olmecs, the Mesoamerican uh, tribe that preceded the Mayans and the Aztecs. Got it. Got it. That is a good generation to pick. I'm the voice uh, of the Quetzalcoatl generation. <laughs> also, also a good generation. Very believing and loving people. Oh yeah, absolutely. When when they sacrificed a human being on an altar and tore his uh, heart out of his still living body, uh, they really stood for old fashioned values. <laughs> they did. I say. They did. I say, make I'm... Northern Mexico great again. <laughs> Amen. Northern Mexico, i.e., Texas. <laughs> <laughs> oh my the, goodness! Not since the Mexican American War, brother. Yeah, baby. Uh I mean, okay, so Liam, I want to talk to you about when you you started stand-up when you were 19. That is true. So you've been in the game for uh, a decent minute, and you've worked with some amazing, talented people, people that that everybody would know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what got you started in stand-up? Well, Seth, uh, it's something that I've always wanted to do, something I knew I wanted to do as a little kid. I always had fun being the center of attention and having people give me positive feedback. Um, And uh, I said to myself, what is the best way I can do that while doing the least amount of work and not having to wake up early in the morning? Yeah. And uh, it looked like stand-up comedy. So when I was uh, 17, I dropped out of high school and I bummed around for a bit and I joined a couple of improv groups. Uh, And I did that for a year. But they were not great improv groups, and uh, a lot of things happened. I ended up dropping out, um, but I still had that creative urge. And I kept in touch with a couple of people from this one improv group I was in. And uh, this kid would go to this open mic in the Lower East Side uh, called Surf Reality. And so on Mother's Day of that year, I forget which year it is offhand, but... uh, I basically made a deal with myself, which was I would, you know, I also wanted to go to college and I made a deal with myself that um, I would go to college. I would do open mics and go to college. And if I didn't like the open mics, 
you know, like my biggest fear, honestly, and this sounds weird now because I'm talking about a 19 year old, but yeah. I could have started when I was 12 if I'd really had the guts. But uh, my biggest fear was I would do stand up and it would become immediately obvious that I wasn't good at it. And that was my only life dream. And, you know, when you're 19, you're like, oh, God, if I, my f- dreams don't come true right now, they're never going to come true. And my life's going to be terrible. And uh, sure. everything's got to happen right now. Uh, luckily, I didn't know how bad I was when I started. So it was fun. <laughs> Um, because when you're starting comedy, you have to have that like shield of self delusion to not know how bad you are. Because if you ever right. really understood how much people hated watching you, you would quit because there's just no way, you know. But anyway, very long story short, um, yeah, I was doing open mics at night. Uh, it was a very interesting time to start stand up in New York City because there was like a lot of blending of the open mic and professional and indie comedy and what they called alt comedy worlds. Um, I'd be like 19 years old and going to a Halloween party in my friend's apartment. And there was like Janine Garofalo and Todd Barry and, you know, like really like big uh, comics who I really admired a lot. Um, It was just a very interesting time. Uh, And then I got a tour. I did like a college comedy game show tour. So I just dropped out of college to do stand-up. And that's, you know, that's that. That's the story in a nutshell. Yeah. So you dropped out of, of college to then go to college. Uh, yes. Is. I, I did. I dropped out of a college where some people like me to go visit other colleges where nobody liked me. Nobody <laughs> right. <wanted> me. <laughs> so the college tour uh, circuit, I guess the college circuit has, I mean, I've heard horror stories about, you know, people going to perform at colleges, sometimes great gigs, but mm-hmm. also terrible gigs. W- right. What was your experience like doing a game show? How Was it different than doing stand-up, you think? or? So what it was, was there used to be a game show called You Laugh, You Lose. Oh, no, okay. It was called Make Me Laugh. That's it. Our tour was called You Laugh, You Lose. We were uh-huh. the big of Make Me Laugh. And... Um, it's a show where basically uh, we would pull a college we would pull a college student up on the stage. There was a big fucking wheel that we had to set up and dismantle and haul around the country in a van. Um, <laughs> they would spin the wheel and if, like whatever the amount of money it was, uh, that's the amount of money that these students could win if these three yeah. professional comedians just could not make them laugh. Um, okay. And when we met with the booker in Grand Rapids, he told us that uh, that Sinbad had been on that tour at one point in his early career. Yeah. So that's how long the tour was running. Um, Jeez. With that game show, you mean? or With that game show, yeah. Uh-huh. So, of course, we're three open micers from New York City. Uh, yeah. So we're not making anybody in Youngstown, Ohio laugh. Uh, yeah. So first, we did 10 minutes of stand-up each at the top of the show. Okay. Warm and then we would a bit. Oh yeah, no, definitely let them know that uh, it is an easy amount of money that they can win. <laughs> like, there's no way that they can't win ten bucks off of us. Yeah. Um, and uh, and of course they're college students, so they're going to stick around for that. Right. Uh, and then uh, you know, and it's just like it was. A, I bombed. I mean, there were like, uh, I would say the place I bombed the least hard was Townsend State University hmm. in uh, Townsend, Maryland. And I still remember each and every show on that leg by the, on that tour, by the way. Oh, no kidding. Oh my God. We started in Fall River, Massachusetts at a community. Well, we started at a, 
at a high school in uh, St. Augustine uh, High School in Grand Rapids. Uh-huh. And then the next stop was Fall River, Massachusetts, the poorest county in the entire United States of America at a yeah. community, Bristol Community College. Um, in the afternoon, our stage was, it was lunch, it was the lunch hour, and it was a tiny stage right outside the, the cafeteria doors in, in the, just in the middle of the student activity building. Oh my gosh. Um, and that's, by the way, that's a lot of college shows. Like that's, yeah. that is, there, there's a reason why the money's so good. <laughs> so whose money, okay, so you make it, you know, they spin the wheel, you make a joke, they don't laugh. Whose money is it that they're taking? Is it you're out of pocket that you're paying yeah. them or is it some fund? So there's a comic named Jeff who was like the tour leader and uh, he was getting, you know, so he was getting paid the most. So basically, uh, you know, he would go to the ATM and take out $200. So it was okay. like the money was technically coming out of his pocket, but he was getting paid enough at the time to, to cover you know, that. Yeah. To cover it. And we all got paid. I mean, look, at I was nine, I was nine, maybe 20 years old. I was making $500 a week in cash. You know, yeah. I was still living with my parents, so I didn't have any overhead. So like it was the fucking greatest experience, you know, like just getting yeah. in the and going with these guys around the country. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. And are you still in touch with these? Are these guys still doing comedy? Are you still in touch with them in other aspects of your of your professional life or or not? Jeff is a professional fisher guy now. He's out hmm. of comedy. And then the other guy I was on the tour with was this guy, John Viner, who's now like an executive producer, family guy. Oh. And then eventually I was fired off the tour because I, you know, it just wasn't funny. I was like 20 years old and just learning how to do stand-up comedy. It was nuts yeah. that I was hired. For. I should not have been hired for this in hindsight. <laughs> like, uh, but uh, I'd already built a rep as a good open micer. And then Brody yeah. Stevens took my place. Oh, so no I, kidding. Yeah. So I was replaced by Brody. Wow. Uh, Brody. Brody. Uh, 818 for life. Yeah, man, RIP. Yeah. Man, that's incredible. I mean, of all the people to replace you, it's a pretty good one. And by all counts, he was perfect for that. Like, yeah. Brody was just built to, like, get on stage and f*** with uh, college students. Like, yeah. You know, he could have just been hired from the, like, again, I'm not putting myself down. It's just, right. I was completely at <laughs> sea. Right. And there's something to be said also for, not doing something before you're ready because it made sure. me really gun shy about the road past the point when I should have been back out there, like bombing my ass off as an MC. Right. And, oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, most people talk about it, like don't take an, you know, an opportunity before you're ready. So you don't blow it with the people that would hire you oh. again in the future. But I mean, you bring up a good point as far as like, Hey, well, that was also probably trying. It's not fun to bomb, you know? <laughs> So it's not, it's not fun to bomb. I wasn't old enough yet to really, you know, and, and it's fine to bomb in your comfort zone in New York, you know, like, but then again, there's a great saying that I love and that I kind of live by, which is life begins where your comfort zone ends. Mm. Right. So like I came back to New York, a stronger comic for sure. Like I learned yeah. a lot on the road and I'd actually, believe it or not, gained a lot of self-confidence, like even just failing over and over you kind of learn what not to do. And then when you get back yeah. in a situation where it's safer for you, 
you like know what not to do. Like, you <laughs> right. make less mistakes. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you well, you develop. To... You what? Sorry. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll tell you. Go ahead. You want to develop? Oh, what? I was just gonna say. I imagine you also develop strategies. You know, to try to recuperate or save yourself, figure yeah. out what does work as as well as what doesn't. Yeah, like for a comic, one of the biggest things is to know how to handle bombing, like especially yeah. gracefully, which is something I still struggle with. But uh, but yeah, there's there's just something to be said also for like, like I feel bad for people who are who especially start in L.A. because mm. there's something to be said for just bombing and failing outside of the eyesight of any industry or any people you might work with in the future. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 sure. Right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, okay, couple things. Because one, you are uh, a true king of the alt comedy world. Sort of all of these, you know, off. Was. I wasn't even. (laughs) Was. Eugene Merman was in New York at the time when I was active in the alt comedy world. Like, Uh Eugene is the undisputed king of that scene. And a a lot of people who went to those shows in New York at the time. Like it's, Eugene is number one. Yeah, uh, I'm just the one that that uh, produced a concert film about it. Yeah, so, which is apparently still available on Amazon Prime in some countries more, or in some areas. Uh, really? Because I got to get that taken down if it is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's listed. It's not available in the U.S. So anybody right. listening to this, you cannot watch it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You know, let me know. We have some. We have some international listeners. So write in to disorganized religion podcast at gmail let me know if you can watch liam mcinney's film i hope uh, not well, not because it's bad i'm really proud of it it's just right uh, i uh well i don't i'll just say it wasn't making it made no money and yeah i was with a really good distributor like it's not the distributor's fault mm. um because they inherited it from another really good distributor and you know like uh basically unless you are well, whatever. I pushed it really hard and made a little, like, made no money. But it did a big tour, festival tour, and like, right. Uh, but anyway, if you Seth want to watch it, I'll send you a private Vimeo link after the Ooh, show. Maybe so. Yeah, I would. I would actually be very interested in watching it. I will hit you up. I will hit you up. There are a couple things you touched on, Liam, that I want to ask you about. Uh, so first is. You, you got into stand-up because, you know, you thought, I want to be center of attention, least amount of work. Do you still feel like stand-up is the least amount of work to be the center of attention or no? I was mostly kidding about that. Um, yeah, I figured. I figured you were. But, but I some worked. people do think stand-up must be easy. I tell a funny story to my friends. I should probably do stand-up. You know, I think that's a pretty common held belief. I will tell you this. Um I got by for a uh, crazy long time on being a good mm. and having a good stage presence. Like I, I have a naturally good stage presence, uh, especially yeah. when I was younger. Also, I started at a time when there were just less comedians, mm-hmm. so it was kind of easier to stand out and easier to get to know each other, get to know each other, and get to know people. Um, yeah. So I got TV relatively young I was like 25 um and but I didn't have an act because I was too not willing to do the work of sitting down and writing every day 
Mm-hmm. The thing about comedy, I can tell you, is you have to treat it like a day job if you want it to be your job. Like it has, like you have to kind of be, treat it like a full time job if you want it to be your full time job. And if you yeah. have a full time job on top of stand up, then you have to treat that as a part time job that you right. happen to hold for eight hours while you're working on your stand up career. And yeah. and that's literally the only way to do it. And so, you know, like that's why it really works well if you're either born rich or young enough that you have the energy to do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what happened was I had a combination of things weren't happening for me in my career the way I wanted them to. And I read this great Woody Allen biography by Eric Lax, uh, where he kind of just laid out Woody Allen's early work ethic and how insanely hard he worked every day and how like, um, you know, like basically he started when he was a teenager, he was a writer. He wrote jokes for a publicity firm and then the publicity firm would send them to gossip columnists and attributed them to their famous clients. And it would be like, you know, like Milton Berle was overheard at Sardi's saying, and then this brilliant Woody Allen throwaway line. Um, sure. And the thing about Woody Allen is, you know, uh, I'm not a fan of his work, but I love the way he conducts his personal life, right? So, like, he's kind of a role model to me uh, in that sense. Um, yeah. Like you know, his uh, adopted daughter or which part of his personal life? He didn't adopt her. <laughs> uh, she was probably, I read his memoir, and I do I do now believe she was 16 when they started dating. But uh, Whew, Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> like, the more he... <laughs> The more he tried to lay it out in uh, defense in his memoir about that, the more I was like, oh, yeah, you probably did that. Like, I don't believe yeah. you did the other thing, but I do definitely believe that you started dating Sunni when she was 16. Right, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. But you're talking about, like, his worth ethic and personal, you know, professional relationships, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, no. No, I was just kidding about uh, the other thing. No, it was right. – uh, no, it's just, like, his work ethic and the fact that, like, you know – he was doing good or bad. He was doing a movie a year for a while, which is yeah insane. Like, yeah. You, like I'm learning, I'm taking movie production classes now, and it is insane that he had a screenplay to finish film in a year. Like that's, and some of them are really good, right? You know, some of them are, but you know that's <laughs> sure. But I mean, if you're making one a year, if you're making one a year, if you make one out of good three a great movie it's more great movies than a lot of directors make in their lifetime yeah yeah Uh, yeah that's for sure uh man so you started uh everything in la or la everything in new york when you started well yeah i was i started everything in new york city um are you from new york or had you just moved to new york when you dropped out of college to do stand-up so i'm from queens born and raised And then one of the things that really helped me when I was, helped me basically be able to afford to pursue, to follow my dreams is uh, my parents moved out of our apartment and Mm. I held on to it. And so suddenly I had this like cheap rent stabilized two bedroom apartment in central Queens. Yeah. So it was like when I wasn't making any money, I had roommates. And when I was making money, I didn't have roommates, you know? Right. Right. Um, You know, and that's just the way it was. So it was like, you know, when you're paying, there was a point when I was paying like 350 a month for, you know, my share of the rent. Right. And, you know, that's when it's, you can have that like 
in New York City, especially, you can have that, uh, you know, a minimum wage job and still be able to go out every night and do stand up comedy till like two in the morning. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, yeah, yeah. that's. So I started in New York. I got I started with a really good crew of writers, actually, like guys who are still making big waves in uh, comedy writing to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of really great comedians, too. Um, but again, this like, you know, just like, you know, like you're starting like you, you have this crew that you started with a few years ago. Yeah. And some of them will drop out and you'll forget that they ever did stand up. Sure. Or, or you'll do what I do with my friends, which is like you'll talk once a year. And just be like, hey, what happened to that really weird guy with the really weird name who had right. that terrible joke? Right, right. Terrible joke about babies. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when you started, my my perception in in sort of outside interest in stand-up was that there there was definitely a feud between or a rivalry between New York LA comics. Was mm-hmm. that there when you started in New York? I think it was less of a feud because you were always, I mean, part of it was like, you know, this was when the, when the internet was new, right? Yeah. So like, unless it was, you went there and you did stand up comedy in LA, you just didn't get to know LA comics. Like, so right. maybe you go to LA once a year and do some shows and meet some people and then maybe they would come to New York and do some shows and you would get to see what LA was about. Yeah. Um, and there was definitely a really good crew of very smart standups, like in their alt scene, like, you know, sure. Uh, Janine, Sarah Silverman, Patton Oswalt, Maria Bamford. Uh, yeah. And then they would come to New York and do like a eating it at Luna Lounge once a year and you'd get to see them and it would be great. Uh, you know, like Bob Odenkirk and, you know, David Cross lived in New York, but uh, Bob Odenkirk would come once in a blue moon. Uh-huh. Um, but then there was a whole other crew of comics and it's still this way in LA to this day where it's like, they're not writerly, they're performing. Like they're performing. Uh-huh. Like uh, actors whose agents told them it's a good idea to do stand up to be seen more. Or, right. you know, like... To develop someone... skills. Yeah, or like yeah. improvisers who like right. are really big characters but you know aren't great joke writers and then new york has always been a little more uh welcome to writerly comics who want to explore bigger ideas yeah and both both those kinds of comics will always look down on the other right sure sure you know so and also the other thing is you know la is a little bit more of like you know new york you can afford to be a little more writerly and a little more like artsy because there's less opportunity to really make big money so it can feel a little more like, uh, you know, like uh, arts, you know, like uh, whatever art art incubator. I'm forgetting the the word for it. Whereas LA, there's so much art business. house. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's like so much uh, business here. Writers comedy. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. Um, oh yeah. There's so much, so many more opportunities to audition for stuff and like, you know, really try to do bigger things out here. Yeah. Like, you can't really afford to spend as much time around and like exploring every avenue of thought that you've had. And like, there's less room for like guys to stand on and women to stand on stage and be all mumbly and like low energy and, you know, just like staring at their gold that made sneakers. And, you know, like you have <laughs> right. to really kind of bring it in your performance here, like, you know, to a degree that you don't have to in New York. 
Yeah. You know, also the audience like is more receptive to broader comedy here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a different expectation. And uh, I guess on the inside world, agents, managers also push for, you know, if you're doing stand up, then it's like, hey, why don't you do more acting? You, you should take a class. And I, I feel like it's vice versa, hmm. right? Actors. Well, especially I also started after the comedy boom had bust. Uh-huh. Right, the 90s. So, but there were still comedians signing big, big sitcom deals. Like it was before the development deal kind of went away. Yeah. So the other thing was, what's your character? What's your five minute set? What's the what's the hook that we can make half a million dollars selling your sitcom pitch to NBC? Yeah. Right? And there was a lot of that too. So especially, again, in New York, there wasn't as much of that. But in LA at the time, it was a lot of like, you'd see these LA comics and it'd be like, hey, I'm Johnny Italian. I'm from Staten Island. This is what my wife is like. Yeah, my mother-in-law is crazy. And my two kids are making me nuts. Right. And then it was just, you know, the whole sitcom uh, saga afterward, right, that they could sell. Yeah, that is... It was the the Ray Romano thing, where Ray Romano had the perfect seven-minute sitcom set that he brought to Montreal that that he could then turn into Everybody Loves Raymond seamlessly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes sense. So what brought you from New York? When did you move from New York to L.A.? I moved here over four years ago. Um, Gotcha. And the reason I moved here was because I had just hit a professional ceiling in New York, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And there's just a point where you have to say, this was great. It was working for me. Now it's not working for me. What do we do next? Right. if If you don't ever stop doing, if you don't ever do that, then you stop growing. And if you stop growing, then like you just stop developing as a comic. And if you stop developing as a comic in any way, then you just stagnate. Yeah. And, you know, even in the open mic scene, you see the people who like, they started out, they clearly had an idea of what they were going to do. They had this germ of an idea. And just for whatever reason, they stopped, they enjoyed the party aspect of it more than the work aspect. Or, you know, they just got really fed up because they just, like gave up on on like trying or whatever and then they stagnate and end up at open mics doing the same like five minutes over and over and over again yeah and you know it's like you you see these people and you're like well yeah that is a funny joke but you have to write more of that all the time what else what else do you got and it's scary to go out on a limb and change your act up and then right back and you're like oh my best joke is my worst joke now i have to get rid of it like this yeah. Thing. Growing up yeah. and evolving is scary. As yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's probably another area where uh, bombing on the road over and over again, you know, sort of this inundation of just, well, now it, it, you're desensitized to it to some extent. Right. You know? But also, you know, it's like if you only stick to the city and you only stick to the shows you're comfortable with, you know, it's like these improv theaters, right? It's a very insular world, and it becomes a showbiz fantasy camp is what I call it. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with stand-up, where if you, if you just stick to the one thing that you really feel comfortable in, where like you're, in, you're kind of the big, the big dog, and people know you and respect you, and you don't break out of that world, uh, you just start, end up in fantasy camp. And by the way, that includes some people who make a good living. Like Sure. It's not just in the amp. Like sometimes people just, 
they they get revered by a cult or not a cult, you know, not the <laughs> Mormon. That... Not literally... <laughs> We're not the there level. yet. We're not there to that point yet <laughs> in our discussion. All right, I was trying yes. to segue seamlessly. Um, no, no, but uh, believe me, I was raised in a cult, so I say that with nothing but love. Oh, interesting. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear about which one. Um, it's a very, it's about as nice a cult as you can hope to be born into. So it's disappointing. But um, oh, but anyway, but anyway it's just like yeah. you have that audience. It can be a big audience. Yeah. You know, like, but like the thing is like. Uh, dude believe it or not someone like larry the cable guy or jeff foxworthy uh they'll do something new i'll see in their stand-up and i'll be like all right you know what larry the cable guy still still trying you know he's still taking swings and missing sometimes right you know yeah but you see it on all on all scales i think this is what you're talking to uh you know in the open mic scene even there are people who are like well i like this location this one location for open mics and they're they're kind of the big insider there and they don't you don't see them anywhere else they only go to that one venue (laughs) or or people who like become big deal in the des moines iowa comedy scene right yeah yeah exactly they come come to la and they just bomb spectacularly by the way des moines because there is no comedy scene and i don't want (laughs) anyone to think i'm taking shots because you meet everybody but it's like yeah, they come here. They do their three minutes at the at the store potluck. They yeah. bomb like crazy. Like you know, you see them do a couple of shows that they hooked up some like comedy dojo or whatever. They right. bomb, 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 and then you never see them again. And they you can yeah. see in their eyes like this. <laughs> I this was well. not worth it. No. Yeah. Uh, or guys who stay on the road too long and then they come back and they're no good. Or you know, just like. Uh, you know, uh, also the funny one is I saw, I saw this a lot in L.A. when I moved here was I'd see comics and I'd be like, man, you know what? She's really got something. And uh, clearly she's been doing this for less than a year. And if she just yeah. sticks with this for another t- five years, she'll be great. And then right. you find out she's been doing it for 12 years and you're like, ooh. <laughs> ooh. Yeah, you're like, oh, my gosh, really? That yeah. long? <laughs> you know what? Uh, maybe comedy's not for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is terrifying. I mean, I started all in LA. So, you know, I saw the people right. who I thought like, oh, man, you are you must be on the cusp of doing these late night improv spots. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, no, I've never I've never gone to the improv. It's like, right. So what are you doing then? Well, I just right. like doing it here in this bar and, you know, right. OK, very interesting. Uh, in talking about developing as a comedian, I agree with you. I think there's a healthy level of delusion that we all need when we Mm -hmm. start out. My question is, when do you think, or if ever, it fades? When does that delusion fade and, you know, you you sort of take a realistic look Mm -hmm. at yourself, your act? When does that happen, do you think? Or does it? I think if it's going to happen, it happens. You know, I got very lucky I got very lucky. I this is such a weird. This is just my life. Was I was just had a string of months where I just could not get a laugh on stage, mm-hmm. and I just decided to like. I really decided to quit. I was like, you know what, man, this has been fun. It's been a fun way to spend these past five years. Uh, I had some good time, and maybe it's just time for me to quit. And I quit. Like I, this is true. I quit, 
And then a few days later, I got a call from someone at Comedy Central that they wanted me to be on the TV show. And I was like, <laughs> well, I guess I have to unquit now. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm back, baby. Same thing happened. Uh, I was going to do, I was, I was like stuck in this call center job for a year and a half. And I had just started working my ass off again on my stand-up. And I was just like, you know what, man? Uh, I'm writing good jokes, but maybe I just need to take a couple years off and get myself together financially and get my head straight on this. And then I auditioned for Best Week Ever and I got it. And then that led to a writing job and I just wasn't wasn't in the headspace of quitting anymore. So it's like, right? you have to, you kind of have to really like not quit if you want to make it in stand-up. But you right. also have to really like be able to listen to that inner voice when it says, this is not working. What do we do to fix it? Because um, I did premium yeah. blend with my, you know, my five minutes that didn't bomb on the road. Um, yeah. That was also, because then I was set up with like road gigs to open for, you know, comics to just warm up for my premium blend appearance. And yeah. then what happened was I was doing like the five minutes that, that worked uh, and also 10 more minutes that just would eat everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> and- sure. You know, and I was like, uh, opening for comics, I respected. And I was like, you know, this booker was really nice to me. And he got me road work, uh, even though he got nothing but bad reports uh, on me. Um, <laughs> you don't know that. You don't oh, know no, that. Of course I do it. I was I was on stage. <laughs> I, I was the one who had to look into the eyes of the <laughs> catch a rising star in Princeton, New Jersey uh, uh-huh. for, for six shows in a weekend. Um, <laughs> I can tell you, I did not do well. And I guarantee if I got a good report, uh, the 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 manager was high when he wrote it um <laughs> yeah well you know you're you're a delightful person to be around that's got to <laughs> count for a good portion of things easy to work with i would imagine so I, I was easy to work with but i was also not a delight to be around because i was young and terrified ah uh, like i would sit there before every show and pray for a bomb threat to clear the <laughs> building so i could get paid without getting on stage right oh man that's interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you survived all of it, though. Survived all it. Thrived. Thrived, in fact. Well, listen, uh, I'm telling the bad stories because they're funnier. <laughs> but they're also right, but I mean, like- clearly you have, I mean, I know that I've seen you do incredibly well on stage. And it's not like yeah, TV right. producers and bookers are just trying to find someone that has the guts to get up there. You know, you clearly have the clout to do what needs to be done. Well, it's also like, I'm not telling the stories of like, it's not fun to listen to someone tell endless stories about how they killed or like, but there were also a lot of just stories I don't remember, which were just little shows yeah, uh, or mics where I just was like, okay, wow, that really works. Or, you know, like I did a show at the Irish Arts Center with my friend Veronica Mosey. Uh-huh. And I had a bit that just almost worked, but didn't. And then she said, no, you have to do this thing at the beginning to set it up. And then once mm. you set it up, you can do all the, I remember clearly it was for the bit I had about greeting cards because yeah. I was reading an article in the New Yorker about greeting cards. And I was just like, oh, nobody does a bit about that. So I did a bit about greeting cards. She showed me how to fix it. I then learned how to write that type of joke, mm. which then made it easier to write the next, write that type of joke the next time I wanted to write that joke. And, you know, it's like, and then the next time I use that joke in a show, and I hate, sorry to use this word, but I killed. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. So this joke went from being something I was ready to, ready to like, you know, 
rewrite like crazy into yeah. being a joke that is done. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, what, what, this is the last question before we get into the religion stuff. Dude, I could uh, talk I'm, about myself for three hours, so. And I could talk about you for three hours. <laughs> uh, so it's mutual. It's mutual. Um, I am curious about what kept you, other than the uh, the olive branches from the universe to keep you in stand-up, you know, these mm. jobs that you kept getting when you were ready to call it. What what else kept you doing stand-up? Uh, you know, what about the art form do you like? Well, I really do like, you know, the feeling. I love the feeling the first time I do a joke after I've written it fully and it works and I know it's done. Yeah. It's a very addictive feeling to uh, nail a joke, have it do well, have it do well again, and have it like just do well over and over again. Yeah. Um, it's led to a lot of things that I would have never done if I'd done a straight job for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been, excuse me, I figured out ways to produce, to self-produce European tours. And I did that for like several years in a row. Yeah. Um, I met a lot of people that I really admire or that I'm a fan of that I never would have met through like if I wasn't doing stand up. like it's just mm-hmm. like, to have someone that you really respect also, uh, but not just like respect, but like someone who's famous, right? Yeah. And like someone you're a fan of and that you've been a fan of maybe before you even did stand up. Right. Uh, tell you after a show that they really like what you did. Yeah. It's a huge feeling. Like it's like, uh, you know, it doesn't happen every day. That's for sure. It happens for me once in a blue moon. But when yeah. you get that from someone that you're like, whoa. I used to watch you in movies when I was 14 years old and right. then they pass along word that they really enjoyed uh, the set that they watched you do. Uh, yeah. Then you're like, Oh my God, that's that person who has affected my life so much uh, enjoys what I do. Like yeah. it's, it, there's no, so there's, there's gifts you get like that. Um, and also, I mean, you know, uh, you know, the hope is that, you know, I'm, I'm almost at a point where I make a ton of money mm-hmm. and then I have three <laughs> yeah. houses and, uh, you know, uh, two wives, you know, sure. speaking I of mean... Mormons. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. What cult did you grow up in, Liam? I grew up a uh, Buddhist. I grew up in a Soka Gakkai cult, a uh, net cult. I mean, sect is the word we use to be polite. Right. Um, right. And it wasn't, it wasn't like we lived on a commune. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in New York city, so it wasn't like I was yeah. physically separated from the outside world, but there is that mental separation uh, yeah. from the outside world. You know, it's just like, you're kind of encouraged to get other people to join so mm. that then your friends can be members. So you're not friends with non-members. Right. You know, right. There's a lot of proselytizing involved. Um, in Buddhism, or at least in this in, sect in, of Buddhism. In this sect of Buddhism. Yeah. Like they had people on, in Union Square literally saying, hey, do you want to make a lot of money? Join us. Come Interesting. Join us. So how would you, oh do you mean, like, do you mean, not necessarily that, that was their pitch, but was, what were the beliefs, I guess, pitch. really is my question. What were the beliefs that you grew up with in this Buddhist sect? 
see, so here's the thing. I still like the practice. I still do the practice. Like to me, I like being in touch with the higher power and I like uh-huh. you know, having a daily spiritual practice. I think it's important for people to like maintain that contact with, with something greater than themselves. Yeah. Um, because you meet people who don't and they're like brains like marbles. Like they're very in and of themselves and it's hard to get yeah. them around. And yeah. That's why well, and I've noticed with the pandemic, sorry, I don't, I mean, I mean to well, cut no, you guys, off, obviously, you but I want to get back to you. I'm just saying that in the pandemic, it also feels like there's a sense of stress that is higher for people, at least anecdotally for me that I've talked to, who don't have this belief in connection to a higher power or to an overarching purpose right. than those who do. Well, that's why I'm so involved with Q right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's a good group. It's a good group of people. They're very active, very right. inclusive. Um, <laughs> I would say the big pitch for people in Q is it's not inclusive. Um, <laughs> well, it depends. It depends on which group. If you yeah. want to be part of the group, they want you. Right. That is true. Um, yeah. 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 And I mean, the truth is like, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, I forget what, the, what we were talking about. But well, yeah, we were talking about the right. beliefs that you grew up with. You oh, like being right. connected like, to a higher power. Yeah. But like people in the pandemic, that's it. Like people in the pandemic right now, especially, you know, a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are keeping physically separated from everybody else. <laughs> right. And right. human beings are not built for that. Human beings are, you know, we're basically pack monkeys at our core. Yeah. And we need to be surrounded by other pack monkeys in order to feel secure and safe and, you know, like on a solid emotional foundation. Right. So it's like, uh, so there's a lot of that going on. And I think there's just a lot of people who are like emotionally spinning off and, you know, just like really kind of getting unrooted from everything. And I do feel like having a daily spiritual practice, uh, you know, really helps you keep rooted to, to who you are in the core, in your core as a human being. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I tease you for for your for your Mormon, uh, for right. being Mormon, but, but it's right. also like you know. I also at the same time like I understand that you know you have this set of beliefs that you live by and that you probably believe. Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I, I don't know. I don't know you as in your inner self, but I know like right. Like you know, like you you talk a good game at least, right? So it's like <laughs> I know that you have these beliefs. I know you live by them. Uh, I know you have three wives in that house here. Um, <laughs> yes, right, of course. We're all very comfortable. And they all no, support me, you, which is great. Did you see that uh, like polygamy is making a comeback in the Mormon, the Mormon uh, community? I mean, I, I guess I'll ask you to clarify. What do you mean making a comeback? So what I saw, I'll tell you what I saw, and then you can clarify oh. what you mean. I saw that in Utah, they're trying to get laws that right. uh, decriminalize or at least lessen the punishments for polygamy. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, yes. so that's still... Mainstreaming. Yeah. They're mainstreaming polygamy again. No, uh, no, they're they're very far from mainstreaming polygamy. Thank goodness. Um, I but would say... they are trying to decriminalize it. As not, the, not the church. That has nothing to do with the church. That's, that's legislators in utah because they they're sick of charging polygamists with uh with felonies essentially right. 
So I think I think they're just trying to instead of put them in jail or prison, just take some money and walk away. I got to say, I've been I've driven through Utah. Uh, first of all, Mormons are the worst, scariest drivers I've ever encountered in my life. And that yeah. is not a joke. No, 100 percent. Terrifying, terrifying state to drive in. I watched on the on the road into Salt Lake City. And I may never forget this. I may fucking lose my marbles one day, but I'll never forget how scary yeah. this was. There was like a, there were two cars with the, with the perfect size gap to get a small like uh, car in. Uh-huh. Car squeezed into it. The car behind him refused to slow down just out of principle. And I respected that. <laughs> so the car in the middle just put its hazards on and started to slowly slow down. Yeah. And then I guess the driver was like, oh, I guess this guy's a problem. And then as soon as he got far enough behind him, uh, the the hazards went off. And then he was just in his space. There's a wow. lot of that on the roads around Utah. Yeah, I mean, for being a Christian people and a love thy neighbor people, that does not happen on the road. And also, I would say one thing you guys don't talk about, because like you're a normal Mormon. You're like a Donnie and Marie type Mormon. Sure. But then you get into the boonies and then they're like the weird hillbilly inbred Mormons. Uh-huh. And, and they're a little they're 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 a trip when you start talking to them. <laughs> they're just like there are... Who are... <laughs> yeah, I... right, right. It's it's uh, I think it's kind of the remnants of the of the uh slightly inbred polygamist lines from the right. uh late 1800s early 1900s that just percolate on through. I don't know what it is about the country. But yeah, it does change the way people look. And I, I did a couple sets in Salt Lake City. Nobody found any of this funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's too close to home, Liam. And, I and I mean, I will say Salt Lake City as a population has become less Mormon, less member really? of the Church of Jesus Christ. So that's interesting because, I mean, it's like all there. I mean, like the, sure. the temple. Yeah, yeah, all the headquarters there. But I mean, you know, a few, uh, what, a few years ago, maybe seven, eight, it might have been almost 10 years ago now, Salt Lake City was named like the gayest city in in the U.S. or something. Pornhub did a study, and it's the place where gay porn is watched the most in the United States. There you go. Sure. Um, I guess that was their criteria. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, how, anyway. So, so fascinating. You, you yeah, Salt Lake in, has changed quite a bit. You were raised in the Mormon religion, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My mom. So so my dad was, uh, as we call, born in the faith. That is, his parents were also members of the church. Uh-huh. Uh, and my mom converted a few years before marrying my dad. So I went on a I went on a bumble day with a lady who very delightful. Yeah. Who converted to go to Brigham Young University because it's oh, an affordable, sure. affordable college, apparently. Yeah, so, so she converted to pay less to go to BYU? But then she became, now she's a really devout Mormon. Oh, like, okay, so, then, so it all worked out then, for her. Yeah, like the faith really took hold with her. Yeah. Like to the extent where I was like, I had a really good time with her, but I had to really, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you know, after the date was over, take yeah. stock and say, Am I ready to like, cause when you date a Mormon, it's a commitment, sure. you know, yeah. it's not like, it's not like a, Hey, we for three months and then 
you know, like, a, you know, it doesn't work out and we go our way, separate ways. Yeah, I mean, like, you certainly shouldn't be doing that if she was truly devout. We only went on the one day. We're still friends. Right, 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 right. But, you know, it's like, I, I'm not saying I her. We did not but uh <laughs> but I'm saying like, love. We get it. We get it. Yeah. But it's like, I've, I've been, I've, because I grew up in this Buddhist sect, I've been very, yeah. uh, always been very interested in uh, Protestant, Protestantism and all the different offshoots of, of the Protestant faith, including the Mormons. So right. that's something I understood when she told me that she had her whole story. I was like, okay, so like this, this will never be a casual thing. It's almost like I have to decide right now if I maybe right. want to convert to Mormonism somewhere down the line. Right. Uh, you know, to like be with this woman forever and ever for the rest of our lives. Right. Right. Yeah. Faith does become a very important uh, aspect for, for us as a, as a people. Yeah, right. absolutely. So what are some of the beliefs that, I mean, okay, so this connection to a higher power, but I, I mean, I have to admit there are some religions that I feel like, okay, I understand kind of what drives them. I don't quite understand mm -hmm. Uh, the Buddhist religion, other than, you know, trying to attain this sense of connection or oneness with, with, with deity. Is that, well, is that accurate or, or how, how, you know, what was your experience in the Buddhist faith? Short answer. Yes. Long answer. It's complicated. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, there was one Buddha, some call him Siddhartha. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's not like Christianity where, you know, whether you're Mormon or you're Southern Baptist, you have the same text, right? Like, uh, right. like the Mormons have the third testament of Joseph Smith, but right. you, still, you still, I'm guessing you still adhere to uh, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon. And then Doctrine and Covenants are, are sort of major books of scripture. And then Pearl of Great Price. But I kind of lump that in with the Doctrine and Covenants. So do you do you and, and this is serious belief. Do you believe that Jesus was born in the United States? Oh, no, we believe Jesus was born in Jerusalem, that he was a Jew and, okay. uh, you know, is is ethnically Jewish. Right. Right. Uh, but that he visited. So after he's crucified and resurrected in you know jerusalem he visits the american continent okay before we yeah. got here uh i mean before before you and i were born yeah but in oh. like you know 30 a.d you know 34 a.d visits uh -huh. the the american continent okay yeah uh, so yeah i was i was actually curious about uh where you were with that um yeah but anyway yeah. so my point so, is just the yeah. point is just like you all believe in Jesus, right? You all believe in the crucifixion, right. right? So it's like with Buddhism, there's a lot of there's it's like a it's like an it's like a big empty room with a million doors. Uh huh. And there's there's just the Buddhists of India and all the beliefs they have, and there's the Buddhists of Japan and China, and you know, uh, there's just a lot of different beliefs, and I like. I like the general circular uh, view of the universe where it's not like a linear thing mm -hmm. where it's like you come from ashes, you live your life, you die, and then you spend eternity somewhere else. I mm -hmm. like the idea that there's, that there's a circular view of time in the universe where 
there was no beginning. I was just reading about this one post-Vedic, uh, I think it's called, God, I'm, I'm so bad at regurgitating knowledge. Like, <laughs> That's really bad at absorbing and then spitting it back out. I think it's sure. called Samana. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's just this idea that, that time is like a snake that swallowed its own tail, essentially. Mm. Um, and that, that, you know, our lives, our lives have no beginning and end. It's just an endless series of cycles. Yeah, uh, and with that, there's the idea of reincarnation, birth and rebirth. Yeah, um, and you know the idea that, but what what really is a common belief is karma, which is the idea that, uh, in a nutshell, that there's an energy. Basically, it's almost like the force, right? There's like an energy yeah. field around us, and the way we live our lives and the way we conduct ourselves uh, affects the, our karma, and that then affects our lives but it also affects the lives of people around us. Um, and the idea is that we can live many lives and spend those lives like, uh, you know, spend our, spend our lives uh, over and over working on our karma to one day approach like the idea, the, uh, the level of, uh, you know, perfection that the Buddha, mm-hmm. you know, attained. And the okay, idea right. that they're, they're almost like prophets were born after the buddha who have uh perfected their practice to the point where they also attained uh enlightenment you know buddhahood uh-huh. right so, so that's it in a nutshell um Got it. if you ask me what my belief is right so it's like i believe that i believe that i know just enough to know that i don't know what i and i don't know enough to know sure. i say i know anything for sure yeah um I also have come to the conclusion that uh, our universe is vast and limitless and there are so many things that we, our brains are not physically capable of perceiving. So it's almost, it's almost like someone who's born blind having sight described to them where it's like, we we can't even, we can't even ascertain the things that we can't sense in our universe. Right. Right. Like we can't even, we can't even begin to un- imagine the things that we don't know. Yeah. Like, like what if like, for instance, ghosts aren't ghosts, but they're also something that we can, that we're barely built to even perceive out of the corner of our eye. Right. You know, or like, what if, what if like, you know, you know, so like, what if, but what if those are other beings that live interdimensionally? I'm not saying I believe yeah. this, but like, what if, what yeah. if ghosts are actually beings that live interdimensionally that we are once in a blue moon able to just perceive and our brains like register them as people shaped when they're right. actually something completely different. Right. So it's sure. like, you know, so that's, that's my feeling about religion is like, I don't know a lot, but I do know that if I maintain a connection with my higher power, mm-hmm. uh, then certain things happen. And if I live my yeah. life a certain way, then certain things happen in certain ways where I'm taken care of in my life. Yeah, you know, and and these are things that I can point to and say, uh, I I maintain my practice, and there are things that cannot be rationally explained by science or or the even the evidence of my eyes and ears, but they happen anyway. And all I can do is just say, okay, well, that's a. By the way, I don't smoke weed. Can you imagine how unbearably long winded I would be if I, I fucking love it. did smoke weed? <laughs> I love it. Who knows? But, you know, 
But at least you're making sense. It, I think what would happen would be you would just ramble in incoherently about something. Hey, man, let yeah. me tell you about the collective unconscious, man. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Man, the mushrooms. Hold on, man. Food, man. I need to eat something, man. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. <laughs> uh, so do you believe in do you believe in reincarnation or or no? Uh, I have to be kind of agnostic about it because uh-huh. um, there are some people who swear that it, it's real and they swear that they've got evidence that they live past lives. And there's people who are like, I knew certain things about something that I, there's no way I could have ever known because I'd never learned about them in school. Uh huh. And, you know, I just kind of take them at their word and say, okay, well, that's weird and unexplainable. Right. But unfortunately death is the great mystery, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like there's no proof that, that, uh, there's, you know, at the end of the day, there's belief and no proof, right? Right, right. Like, do, well, you, do you believe, do you personally yeah. believe, not the Mormon religion, yeah. but do you personally believe that if you live your life in a certain way, you get a planet in outer space, and then your family lives on your planet with you? Yeah, yeah, I mean, okay. uh, I do, yeah. And, and it's not even just that we get a planet, we get to create other planets, too, right? Like, we become like god we become like heavenly father heavenly mother we're making spirit babies we're sending them to earth or to equivalent planets we're, we're continuing the work right isn't that blasphemy though no notice to say that you become to say you believe in in god as the all-powerful creator and then to say and then uh yeah. i a mere human being could one day attain godhood Right. No, we don't, we don't count that as, as blasphemy. I mean, technically, technically my faith is, uh, what pantheistic. We don't worship, we don't worship many different gods. We worship, you know, our heavenly father, but we believe there are others like him and like heavenly mother that create, you know, you talk about the universe being vast. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I wholeheartedly believe there are aliens out there. Do I think we'll come in contact with them? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if we did. And if they looked really similar to us, would not would not be surprised by that at all. Do you um? Did, so you must have done the year where you went and uh, you know uh, ministered, right? What, not ministered, what's right. the word? So I served my mission. We call it a mission. And that's mission. Uh, that's yeah, yeah. So and it's two years. So for a young man, two years. Yeah. Okay. So I did that. I was in eastern Canada, the the Quebec province. Oh, the Quebecois. The Quebecois, baby. Yeah. Not, so I not spoke. Montreal. Uh, you were uh, like, what's that? Uh, not Montreal, like BC, right? Uh, no, so like BC, like Montreal. BC. I was I I served sir about six months on the island of mount royal uh, kind of in the nice. center of montreal yeah and then all over the quebec province yeah dude that's that's amazing that's like uh that's like me and my weird uh tour or just right going. yeah exactly and i went to all these different places knocked on doors bombed over and over and over again <laughs> <laughs> It was great. It was terrible, but it was great all at the same time. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot. Um, 
but yeah, that's, yep. That's where I was. I can't wait. I want to go back for JFL. I want to get a spot on JFL. I want to go back. I want to use some French on stage and uh, you know, have fun. I want to, I want to go back. Absolutely. As a comedian. It's a good goal. I, uh, yeah, I performed in Montreal at the comedy zone a billion years ago. Um, uh-huh. But uh, I just have a couple of friends up there. I really want to see. I mean, once all the over yeah you know and i've got some stuff i'm working on but hopefully by the summer i'll be all vaccinated and i just want to get in my yeah. car and just go see all my friends <laughs> I go to- yeah i think we need to just call like a month vacation for everybody <laughs> in the country just go wherever you want do right. whatever you want to do right. the government will pay you one more month <laughs> yeah right. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly just take a vacation you know get out of your house walk uh, about Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so Liam, what, what do you want after this life? If you could have your druthers, your pipe dream, what would you want to experience? What would you want there to be? I got to say living on my own planet and creating other planets sounds pretty dope. Yeah. Um, Pretty good. Right. It's the whole, everything else you have to do to get there that uh, doesn't sound (laughs) like, you know, no pain, no gain, baby. The Jehovah's Witnesses are great because they believe that 144,000 of them will uh, ascend to heaven. And everyone else is like, you. Right. And, and they have the names, all 144,000. It's not even a mystery. Right. Like they right. And it changes right. depending on who they'd like. Yes. And I just can't believe, I mean, I can't imagine going to that church. I don't want to rag on other faiths, but it is shocking to me that it's like you go to church and it's like, I hope none of you make it. Dude, it's like, I'm I the only one that I want to go. My last roommate uh, is named Kiria Abrahams. Uh-huh. And she wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Doomed. Yeah. And it's all about growing up Joho and how she escaped from it. Wow, no kidding. And it is... Interesting. It's, it's actually pretty well written, uh, which yeah. is always surprising when a friend of mine can pull something off like that. <laughs> sure. Um, but also just it's incredibly fascinating look. Uh, yeah. I mean, all religions have their right? Like, Of uh, course. Like, do you, do you believe gay people are evil? No, I don't believe gay people are evil. I don't really believe people in general are evil. I mean, obviously, there are some terrible people out there, right? Right. Um, but no, I don't think – I don't think – uh, that gay people are evil. Do I think homosexuality is an immoral practice? Yeah, oh. I do, okay. but not in the sense of like, I mean, it's sort of in the same sense that like premarital sex is an immoral practice, right? I was saying that that I think homosexuality is immoral in the same way I think pre-mor- premarital sex is immoral. So in, in like I don't feel driven to campaign against people being married in gay marriage. You know, I don't feel driven right. to chastise people for practicing homosexuality because I don't think it's really hurting anybody. But I don't think that's the way that uh, that we are supposed to be ha- interacting with each other, you know? For a lot of that is, I believe gender is eternal. I believe gender is important, and I believe gender is finite. That is, we are either male or female. Right. 
So, but, uh, so, so do you look at it as like being gay is a choice that people have made at some point in their lives, like consciously or unconsciously? I mean, for some, maybe, for some, maybe, Uh, but I think for the most part, no, it's not a choice. I think it's a challenge, right? Right. I mean, it's an unfortunate, I think, challenge for a lot of people, uh, or uh, not unfortunate, difficult. It's a difficult challenge. If you're going to be a member of my faith and homosexual, that's a really difficult challenge. Uh, So if, if the Heavenly Father created someone gay, how could it be wrong? Yeah. And see, I don't think that like, for the same reason, I don't think Heavenly Father like creates people who have one arm or like, I don't think Heavenly Father purposely creates people to be like, you know, my kids have a bleeding disorder. I don't think Heavenly Father purposely created them that way. Right. Uh, I, I think we're in a fallen world where there are uh, deviations, right, from the perfect, from what was going on in the Garden of Eden. So uh, in that sense, I think the resurrection will clear up some things. You know, there's there rare rare disorders where people are born with both sets of genitalia. Does God create that person? I don't think so. I think that's, you know, a sort of misfortune of, of, uh, of the way cells come together. Right. Right. Do I think that's all going to be corrected in the resurrection after this life? Yeah. hundred percent. So what's the resurrection? Like just, uh, that's when Jesus comes back. So, well, the resurrection uh, kind of, yeah, I mean, Jesus was the first to be resurrected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after everybody sort of lives on this earth, uh, there will be a resurrection where people are, uh, and in my faith, there's, we believe in sort of stages. There's a first resurrection where all of the holy people, all of the righteous people will be resurrected. And then you know, kind of down the line, but everybody will be resurrected. That's the unifying of spirit with perfected body. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, and so you, it's a lot of people coming back. Yeah. Everybody, baby. Grand reunion. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be tough getting a reservation at uh, restaurants. That's for sure. <laughs> You'll just create your own food. It'll be right there. Boom. And so you Wherever think people you... will come back not gay. <clears throat> And they'll just go, like, oh, that was a crazy phase I went through. Right. I, I actually don't think that either. So I think for people, I, I guess this is the way I'll put it. If we okay. want that, if you want that to be part of your identity eternally, it's just so important to you. I think you'll probably come back that way. Uh, but, or at least feeling like that, right? But does that mean that uh, you're an evil person? No. But I do think that if you are unwilling to sacrifice that portion of yourself for God, then mm-hmm. you're not going to make it to what we call the celestial kingdom. You're not going to make it to, you know, world creating tier heaven, right? Just like there, I, you know, there are aspects about myself that I uh, find important or at least kind of make me who I am, you know, some anger issues I have some uh, judgments I have about other people. If I can't give those up, then I probably not, I'm not going to make it there either. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's like a big, been a big thing for me is turning over, especially judgment of other people. Yeah. And I, right. I don't know. I don't know how, I mean, I need to work on it, but 
I think there are aspects of ourselves that we, you know, religion asks everybody to give up something. And I think that's another thing. Is it a big thing? Some people, yeah, it's a huge thing. If I was 25 and having this conversation with you, I'd be busting your balls till you're furious. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, if you need to channel that part of yourself, let's do it, baby. No, no, no. It's a... Yeah, I, I've given up that fight. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm not here. You know what I like about what I, and what I'm trying to cultivate in this podcast is just a good. You know, let's figure out where we disagree and let's figure out where yeah. we agree, and we can agree to disagree. I mean, the thing is, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I like about life, as the yeah. way I see it, is that I see it less as like a perfect design and everything is fit into it. And more is like, uh, I don't know if you've ever done a thing where you've spun a wheel and put paint on it. Paint? Oh yeah, and of just course. Like, some of it spirals and some of it splatters and some of it, and it's just a yep. big mess. And then, you, and then you stop the wheel and you look at it from a distance and you're like, oh, that was a pattern that nobody was planning on, but it looks really beautiful. Sure. That's how I feel about life, you know, and about this world and about this world we're put in where it's just like, yeah, you know, there's, to me, there's less design and more just, you know, things that, things that are amazing. And actually, I mean, one of the things I really love about people, I, I used to hate people. I've really come Uh around to loving people. Uh And part of that was just, I, you know, I had to, I had to quit drinking over 10 years ago. And yeah. part of the program that I that I quit drinking in is about turning over, and it's a big yeah. part of that. It's like a, it's a big step you have to take. The first two steps you have to take are about admitting you have no power, and then being, and then admitting that there's a power greater than yourself, yeah, uh, who can bring you back to sanity. And then the mm-hmm. third step, which is the one that it took me many years to learn. Uh, to really start practicing, in my opinion, correctly, is giving giving everything over to that higher power. Yeah, like everything saying saying I can do the things that are in front of me, and then everything else I give over. If you think it's God, I give over to God. Right. Yeah. The phrasing in the program is a God of my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that's so that is. And for some people, that's the closest they ever come to a spiritual belief. Right. Uh, it's just giving it over to this to this higher power of, of your understanding, of your choosing sometimes even. Yeah. Um, that being said, I've learned to really love people. I've really mm-hmm. learned to love even people who I disagree with or I don't like. Like you can sure. dislike someone intensely. Uh, that being said, do I love Donald Trump? No. Do I love... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Do I love his family? Absolutely not. I, I hate them. And yeah, warm of bees attack them. I would hope it would happen on CNN live. Um, <laughs> sure. But, but uh, to me, I am just willing to say I'm not gay. I'm not even like one of these like cool millennials who like is experimentally or, you know, like right. sometimes sleep with a, with a guy because he finds it, like just like that's an attractive guy. Like there's just kids right. like that in the world, and it just boggles my mind that we live in a world where just kids think nothing of it. Like kids are just very like 
You know yeah. what? I'm gender fluid. I prefer to be referred to as they, like in the multiple. Um, right. And to right. me, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Uh, yeah. I don't always even agree that I, I should respect certain things that I'm told I have to respect. Right. But at, at the end of the day, I'm just like, man, you know what? That person has found a way, has found what they are, right? Like what they, yeah. what they are inside. And that's yeah. beautiful, right? So it's like, to yeah. me, if someone's like, it just makes me happy to be get, not even be happy. It's like, this is what I am. This is what At I want. Peace, okay? Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I only am attracted to other men. I find women's vaginas disgusting. Right. Uh, I will only sleep with women when I'm really drunk. And, uh, <laughs> and think they're a of, man. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of gay dudes in New York who will tell you that they've slept with women when they got drunk, but it's like, Interesting. Uh, it's, it, I mean, also I started stand up so young and in yeah. this New York City Lower East Side performance art scene that like uh, I very quickly had to overcome, because I grew up in Central Queens, which is hillbilly territory almost. Uh-huh. It's very redneck uh-huh. where I grew up. And I grew up with a lot of preconceptions about race, a yeah. lot of preconceptions about women, a lot of preconceptions about gay people. Like yeah. that you don't even know you're thinking until you step outside and you get another perspective and you're like, Oh yeah, you know what? Uh, I can go to 125th and Broadway, and I won't be shot dead as soon as I walk out of the subway station, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's some people again. They come to LA or they come to New York, and they never leave. I once did a show. I know we're going long, but I just want to say I once no, did a show good. Fort Greene, Brooklyn, black when it was a black neighborhood. It's now very gentrified, but it's an all black neighborhood, all black yeah. bar, all black audience. I was headlining a show of like five white comics and it was one white dude after another who went up and all they did was talk about how uncomfortable they were to be performing in front of a black audience. And, and it was like very, and then I just got up there and I just, as I looked at the audience, I just said to myself, like, man, these are just people who paid to have a good time. Like, what are these, like, what are we doing here? So I just did my set for them and it did well. And I was just like, yeah, because there's, there's, you know, they're just, they might have a different cultural perspective than I do. There might yeah. be like things that they don't find funny or that they just didn't grow up with or, you know, yeah. this or that, but they're just people who want to laugh and will respond to a pun- good punchline. If you have one. Right. And so it's like all this that I had to learn over and over again when I was 19, 20, 21 years old, just yeah. about like the diversity of life on earth and about just like, okay, you know what? There, there's gay people. Uh, they're not they're yeah. not predatory like all the people I grew up around say they're not uh, they're not all like uh, like the stereotype gay dudes I would see in 80s comedies where it's yeah. just like mincing around with a limp wrist like listening right. all the time and there are guys like that yeah. you know but yeah, the, more power but, to them but the yeah. majority of people I met were just like what I had grown up thinking of as like normal people right, right. like you grow up in, in that thing where it's like, well, this is what normal is because this is what we all are. Right. And then this is, and then you eventually realize like, oh, there were probably gay people in Queens where I grew up who were terrified of even saying they were gay because they might get murdered. Yeah. Because like dudes would come from Long Island and New Jersey and Staten Island to Christopher Street in Greenwich Village, which was like the gay Mecca of the East Coast. Right. And they would murder people on the street for being transvestites 
or for being openly gay or for like making out with their boyfriend or whatever. Right. right? And, and so it's like, yeah. And see and, that I think objectively way more evil, way more evil. Right. But, but you know, if you ask these people, they would say, Oh, I'm a good Catholic. Right. right? They would say, yeah. you know, that person is a deviation from, from God's uh, plan and therefore they're evil. God doesn't love them and they're going to hell and they're yeah. not, they're not a hundred percent human. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like, yeah. So to me, it's important to like kind of just identify those things within myself first and say, okay, I have this prejudice about this thing. You right. know, like, uh, like I'm still wrapping, I'm, look, I'm, I'm old enough to say I'm still wrapping my mind around the gender neutral thing. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure. I've had it explained to me and I'm still not entirely sure what that's supposed to be. Right. right? I mean, you have an idea that gender is fixed. Yeah. Um, I, I have the, I just say, go with God. If you, <laughs> if you feel like you were born in the wrong body, I really hope you're hundred percent certain before you have the surgery. That's all I can say. Yeah. You know, yep. like, um, you know, I wonder about kids who make, who make that determination when they're 10 or 11 years old and start the hormone therapy early in their, right. you know, I, I hope, I hope to God that like they're making the right choice and they're not, not choice again, not a choice, right? I'm, well, I mean, as far as you know, choosing to have the surgery, right? Like hormone. that's a choice. Well, nobody's going to do bottom surgery on a twelve-year-old, but they do have thirteen-year-old I mean, hormone. You know, they have hormone blockers. Yeah, which you know, yeah, it changes you. That changes your phys. That changes your physical body. It changes your brain chemistry too. Yeah, right? like suddenly you might be injecting a ton of estrogen in in a developing body. Right. Uh, that was maybe, you know, was set up gland with the gland glandularly for yeah. testosterone. Right. Yeah. So like you, on the one hand, you want to support a kid and you, you don't want to ostracize them and you don't want to drive, bully them or drive them to suicide. And you don't want them to like wake up in the morning and, and say, Oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm a bad person for feeling right. a certain way. Right. But at the same time, you're like, well, when you're ready to take a drastic, permanent, life-altering step, I pray to my higher power that you're making you're making the correct step. Like it's the right yeah. decision to yeah. do that, and yeah. it's a decision to allow you to do that. You know? Yeah, I 100% agree. I 100% agree. Um, and then what's hilarious too is like there's the there's the parents who like very openly and loudly talk about their kids like that, and it's like, well, you know what? It's well, your kid have some privacy, like. Yeah. Yeah. It's not your choice. Right. And it's not your choice either. You know, you should let the kid decide. I mean, if we're going to give the kid enough power to decide if they're going to change their physical body, you can at least pay them the courtesy to make the decision about when to talk about it. Right. Not go on NPR two weeks later. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Or sign some TV deal. I mean, just unbelievable. Uh, Yeah. I think it's. You're sending the message. I feel like I might be wrong, <laughs> and I'm just preemptively defending this. You were talking about people. Uh, how you want to connect with people, find commonality, kind of destroy stereotypes or preconceived notions about them. That's what I love about comedy too, because you know, growing up in Utah, I sort of had this monolithic view, uh, uh, or, or I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
this universal view about what all people think. And, and it's been nice to use comedy in a way to find commonality as I've discovered, oh no, everybody actually thinks uh, a million different things. And, and yet comedy can bring us together. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I think religion was supposed to do was bring people together. But unfortunately, like a lot of things, it's been used to divide, which I don't think is, is the right way to live uh, whatever faith you have. My favorite is the Catholic Church's move, which is to just go into a place and absorb their gods and <laughs> yeah. just turn their gods into Catholic saints. It's not that's bad. what they did with the Irish. Yeah. That's what they did with the Druids. That's what they did with uh, all of South and Central America. Like it's a, uh, it's you know, uh, the Catholics. The Catholics were just like, <laughs> we're like the yeah. Walmart of, of religions. We're going to make it universal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Exactly. All right. I want to give you, I know you've asked me some questions, but I want to formally allow you to ask whatever questions it is you have before we wrap up. So Liam McEnany, what's the deal with Mormons? What, what could I say that would really just offend you to your core about your religion? That's what I really want to know. Is that what you want to know? And then you want to say it? No, it's just, I, we've, we've discussed everything else. It's just something I find yeah. very interesting. Because especially know. Mormons, like yeah. the Mormon church is officially on the side of the Book of Mormon is hilarious, like the musical. And they take, sure. ads, out, they take ads out in the playbill for it, right? Yeah, yes. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I've never seen it, but I've definitely listened to the soundtrack. You can't be cool with everything that, that goes on in that musical. Like, it just... Right. No, I mean, I'm not right. I'm not, I'm not uh, jumping up and down for the way they portray, you know, the colonization of, of our faith. Um, Frogs and. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there are aspects of that, that, yeah, it's not like it makes me angry though. I I don't know. I I don't know that there's anything that. Like offend, offend isn't even like make you angry. It's like just kind of touches a part of you that just you dislike where you're like, yeah, I don't like you saying that. I wish you wouldn't, you know? Oh man. I I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't know really how to answer that. I'm trying to think about, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's more personal. There are definitely things you could say to me personally pertaining to my faith. Like, you know, I don't like it when people are like, well, you're bigoted because you think, homosexual homosexuality is a sin Uh right i don't like that aspect uh of i think kind of popular perception of the mormon faith um trying to think about any other examples i mean the you know I, i don't know some of the social hot button issues right homosexuality transgender um i think i feel Anytime someone says, well, you are evil for thinking that these people should not be the way that they are, that irks me a little bit. But it's not, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not saying you have a bad point. I'm just saying that's not. What if I, I said, don't know. I don't know if I'm said, explaining myself very well. What if I said to you? Yeah. I don't think you're evil for feeling that way because you were raised in a religion where this is just the belief and it's just the world you were brought up in. And I understand that. Right. 
it's a little hypocritical to say, uh, I don't agree with the way you're living your life. And I, I base that on the, on the way that I live my life. Yeah. That some people don't agree with, and it makes me really, ang- makes me angry when people say that to me, but it's all right yeah. to say that to you. Like, is that, is yeah. that something that will, if, and I realize I'm phrasing something I actually believe in, in a rhetorical question <laughs> that's meant to be funny. But it's like, is that something that would be really offensive if I just said that straight out instead of like wrapping it in a riddle? Uh, well, no. But I mean, if you if that's the way you really feel, Liam, you know, just tell me. Just tell me that's the way you really feel. Uh, that is how I feel. I feel like it's. Yeah. I feel like it's it's a it's a, like a moral hypocrisy to say. Sure. Uh, I I know that I'm living the right way, and and therefore you're you're not, right? Ah, uh, yeah, and. and and the thing is, so I'm taking the word evil out of it and I'm taking right. moral out because right. at the end of the day, like it's, there's no evil or immoral in that. It, it's the evil and immoral is in the way you choose to treat the people that you don't yeah. like you disagree with, right? Yeah. You know, and so, uh, but I do think that there is a moral hypocrisy to that where it's like, uh, I, <laughs> my, my yeah. church and my faith puts me in the standing to, to then say that you're wrong. But right. I'm I'm right, even though other people will point him. Like if you look at the writings of Arthur Conan Doyle, that guy was hard on Mormons. That yeah. guy, that guy was wrong about the way he portrayed Mormons in uh, the Sign of the Four. I think it was right in uh, what the first Sherlock Holmes book or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, dude, they're not murderers. Yeah. Right, just people who who have their faith who live in Utah, like. <laughs> Right. But not a kill cult. I mean, I think I think he was playing with this sort of now there are some sort of violent moments in Mormon history for sure. And I think he was playing off of that with the perceived sort of pacifist uh over, you know, I, I think generalization of, of the Mormon people. I think generally my people of my faith are relatively pacifist, not an overly violent people. Um, so I think he was probably having a lot of fun with that too, but, uh, no, I don't, I, I guess I will say this. I don't see the, the moral hypocrisy because it's not that I'm saying I'm better than, than someone who is homosexual. It's right. what I, what I'm trying to say is I have my own challenges that are different from the challenges facing a homosexual person as far as like all of us getting to heaven. Right. Um, So it's not that I'm living, you know, the right way or even better. It's just that I'm living a different way that is in line in one aspect with what I perceive to be God's plan and, or God's desire. Uh, And there are other ways I live my life that are contradictory to God's desire. And they're just not as open or as public or whatever. Right. And so, sure, you can call me on that, but you might not know those aspects of me. Right. Right. But I'm I'm willing to say that those are definitely aspects of me. You know, I am now I feel like when when you bring up polygamy, it's like a sensitive subject for Mormons, too. Is that like something offensive? No, Uh, no. I think I think it's touchy in the sense that, you know, people assume based on the way we're portrayed in the media that polygamy is still happening so i think that might be defensive in the sense of people being like well no we're not we're not polygamists anymore 
Right. Um, and we haven't been, you know, for a hundred years. Isn't that great? Uh, I think that's this, that's the only sense that I've got growing up, but no, it doesn't offend me. Uh, you know, I'm disappointed, right. When there's a show that's like, oh yeah, we're Mormon. And here are my four wives. I'm sort of like, oh, come on. <laughs> Sister wives. Yeah. Aren't we past that? Aren't we past that now? I thought, I thought, you know, but it's not I'm necessarily offensive. You know, it's just disappointing. Like a true dad would say. I would, uh, I would say polygamy sounds like it involves a lot of listening. Yeah. And uh, if you can do that much listening, maybe you are eligible for sainthood. <laughs> right, right. Ooh, well, that, I, I hope nobody heard that. Um, <laughs> I hope people tuned out a long time ago. Uh, oh, man, I love it. No, I think, you know, polygamy, polygamy is an interesting aspect of the, of the, uh, of, of the faith. Because uh, it's not like the church as an organization, or even theologically, has ever come out to say polygamy is evil. Uh, what we've said is, as a as a church, is we don't practice it now, essentially because it's illegal. But who knows what'll happen if it is deemed legal, right? That's that's a big question that I have. So when you said, you know, I heard a polygamy is coming back, uh, I was like, oh, well, you know. I don't think it is because we would have gotten an email or something, but it could. Uh, and to be honest, when I read, uh, you know, the decision about homosexual marriage being allowed, it is the the Supreme Court case. It's hard to imagine a world where polygamy is not also allowed uh, in in the relatively near future. Right. Um. Do you do you only watch clean stuff? Cause I know you like produce a clean comedy show and yeah. you're a clean comedian, but it's like, you know, forget yeah, about I, whether or not you, you agree with South Park's many jokes right. about Mormonism. Like do you even right. watch South Park? I've seen a couple segments of South Park. I've never actually seen a whole episode, but it's not because I didn't want to. It's just, we didn't have cable when I was young and uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I don't know. I've just never really sought it out. Um, but I mean, I talked to people on my mission who that's how they knew about the Mormon faith was South Park, hundred percent. Right. And it's not like South Park portrays Mormons actually terribly. Uh, no, there's a whole running joke about how they're the only people that get to heaven. Right, right, right. There's the faith. Like, I don't know. There's an episode where they end up all in heaven. They're like, well, who was right then? The Mormons. Right. Mormons. So, yeah. yeah. So no, I think Matt Stone, Trey Parker have a pretty, I think all things considered actually pretty accurate portrayal of, you know, the, the episodes they've done about Joseph Smith, from what I can tell, very accurate, actually, as crazy as those episodes are quite accurate. Um, yeah. I think they look at, you know, as at Mormons as kind of quaint people that don't intend to do other people harm, but might be a little uh, traditionalist, you know? Right. And they're thinking maybe a little, you know, quaint, I think, is the best way to phrase it. I certainly um, don't hit you guys like science. But do you watch like do you watch Eddie Murphy or do you watch? Uh, yeah. Dirty yeah, Show? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I watch, you know, I've watched R-rated movies. Is it recommended by the faith? No. Right. No, it's not. But it's not part of our kind of worthiness questions either. You know, I think the the idea is. I don't know. My perception of my faith is that it's, there's a big aspect of it that is personal. 
So if you feel you can maintain connection with God, uh, then you can do uh, or, you know, consume uh, kind of things that you want, right? As far as media goes. Now, I will say, does it make it more difficult? Like going through Breaking Bad, does it make it more difficult to feel the spirit? Yeah, yeah, it does, 100%. Uh, so, you know, I think you take that into consideration as you consume uh, less holy media. Here's, here's my last question about Mormonism. Yeah. You live your life right. Yeah. You're on your planet. Yeah. You're able to create other planets. What kind of planets are you creating? I mean, I don't know. My friends and I would talk about like when the matrix came out, it'd be cool to have a matrix planet where you can like defy gravity and stop oh, time. Now where you're like, uh, really hooked into machines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Okay. Uh, one, one of my friends wanted to make a skiing planet where you just, you skied all the time. It was snowing all the time. Just perfect perfect slopes you could just i think most likely the planets we're gonna create are gonna be like earth they're you know intended to sustain life and uh but you know we have eight i don't know where are we now in our in our solar system eight or nine what did we land on with pluto eight pluto's eight. not quite a planet and then there might actually be a planet beyond that right so I, I, you know, maybe those are the play planets. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's crazy cool stuff we can do on, on Jupiter that we just don't know about yet. Right. So that, you know, that's really interesting to me and maybe the most relatable thing I've heard about Mormonism so far uh -huh. is that as a kid, you and your friends would just sit around and discuss what kind of planets you would make. Yeah. It's yeah. so interesting to me, <laughs> you know? Yeah like uh right well when it's part of the culture you know hey look when, where i grew up in queens me and my friends once had a very long conversation about what gay sex would be like <laughs> um because we had learned about the birds and bees like you yeah know, grade or something maybe yeah. younger so we knew yeah. it was penis and vagina right but then we were like so my my one friend had his mom he had his, he lived he had two sisters he had a mom and yeah. then his aunt who is not related by blood who lived with them, but because they didn't have enough bedrooms, she shared a bed with his mom. Yeah. Uh, and one day he said, you know, I know that when two women have sex, they use a fake. So we were having this conversation. He's like, so I know when two women have sex, one of them puts on a fake penis and that's how they have uh. sex. So maybe when two men have sex, one puts on a, a like a fake vagina. Right. Right. So I literally just assumed that that was how gay people had sex until I was in my late teens, maybe even 21. And one yeah. day really thought about it and was like, Oh no, that's no, no, they have sex. They just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't need, they don't need to wear anything necessarily. No, but it was just like something that because I was so young and yeah. just the first idea that I'd heard that made sense. And I never really, yeah. like, you know, think about it a lot, you know, you're right. just, one day I was just like, Oh, of course why would they like that how does that how would it even physically work like right maybe you right. put it between your legs and <laughs> and just go i don't know who knows I don't know. <laughs> yeah who knows i you know i should say given given those comments that you just made i should say that you know as a church regarding what media we consume right 
obviously pornography is a big no-no for my faith. Right. There's also, you know, I think general counsel to consume the best books and movies and, you know, whatever it is possible. Right. Uh Personally, do I adhere to that all of the time? I do not. I stand guilty and accused, uh, convicted. I do not do that all of the time, but that is the general counsel. So when you say the best, do you mean morally or just of quality? Uh, both, but mostly morally, right? I mean, we should watch, um, ah, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I think, I think quality, you know, there are some, there are classic books that deal with really difficult topics and Uh it's, it's hard to deal with difficult topics without talking about those topics, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, I, I, I think there's kind of a time and place for all of that. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's not like in, in, uh, grade school, you're reading tests of the Dubervilles, you know? Right. Um, it's, uh, but, but even uh, as an adult, I'm not reading tests of the Dubervilles. <laughs> right. Maybe I've for different reasons though. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'll say this, right. Like it's, I think it's one thing to watch. Um, uh, I don't know. One one discussion I actually had with my dad was about the movie Fargo. So classic Coen Brothers film, right? I imagine you've seen it. Yes, multiple times. So a uh, relatively violent film, uh, certainly not by today's standards, but when it was made, fairly graphic. Uh, but the overall moral of the film is incredibly wholesome. Right. And so that was a movie that my dad told me about because, you know, my friends and I uh, had wanted to watch it. And my dad was like, no, you should not watch it now. But Uh I, you know, he was like, it's a fantastic film. I'll tell you everything about it because I've seen it. Uh, Is it necessary for you to watch it? No, but you could, I mean, obviously when you're a full-fledged adult, watch it. But I, I'm, I would you should not watch it now. So I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 28, 29. Fantastic film. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny is it's a great movie. I just have so many Coen brother movies. I prefer to it. Oh, Um, sure. I mean, they're, uh, they're fantastic filmmakers. I'm just saying as far as like what we consume, you know, we should look for, uh, pieces of art and works that glorify good morality. Now you might have to go through sort of terrible experiences to get to a, a good morality, but you know, there's difference between watching a film like, um, I don't know, Kramer versus Kramer where, right. where there is full frontal nudity, but, it's brief. It's in one scene. It's kind of, you know, arguably part of the arc of the story and, and pornography, right? Right. There's, there's a different point to those two medias or to those two, uh, you know, works of art. If you can, if you want to call it that. Hey man, the Renaissance period was full of just full frontal nude statues. Right. Yeah, absolutely. David is a work of art and you know, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not that, that as a faith, we try to avoid uh, 
everything that is sort of, you know, part of the real world. But okay. do we try to avoid aspects of, you know, Hollywood or media in general that glorify uh, immorality? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we do. Right. Do you identify yourself as like a Mormon comedian? Uh, no, I, I think of myself more as um, as a comedian who talks about his faith. Mm -hmm. I just think that's more relatable. I think that's more relatable to people. Um, but uh, but am I Mormon? Yes. Am I a comedian? Yes. I guess I don't know. Are are, you, are we? I suppose there's a semantic battle we could have. Um, you get up there and you're like, hey, you guys might be wondering why I'm so white. Well. <laughs> right, right. No, usually my opener is I am married, but I'm also Mormon. So I'm still kind of out there. <laughs> That's Anybody, any, any, any single women want to hit me up, want to go to heaven, hit me up. That's usually the opening line. You should hook up with those dry bar guys. I really should. I need to, I need to get a good solid, like 20, 20, 30 minutes on tape and send it to him. I have the dry bar channel on, on my TV because uh -huh. it's like one of the Samsung high def channels. So just like, I've oh, watched yeah. a lot of, yeah, it's, and you know, it's all shot in Provo. So yep. Yep. Any, anytime someone is on there and they're talking about the Mormon faith, it does huge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's the saying, you know, no prophet is accepted by their own people. <laughs> or in their own land. I'm a little worried. I mean, the people that I fear the most are, you know, friends and family. Yeah, I mean, I get that. But, you know, the, the, the other thing is the, like, uh, just the idea, the sports idea of playing in front of your hometown crowd is always the best. I will, yeah. I will tell you, I've recorded two albums and a concert film and a yeah. A couple of TV spots in New York City, like in, in front of my people. And it just makes you more comfortable. Yeah. Um, like there's something about doing a show in front of the crowd that you're not 100% comfortable in front of that can really even have the little bit, littlest bit of, of uh, intimidation or, you know, you know, intimidate you a little bit. You know, it's, it's right. good to feel free, right? So like. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I guess I guess where I have issue is I worry. So faith is so important to people. And I find mm -hmm. some, you know, joking about aspects of my faith liberating in L.A. because nobody cares truly about my faith in L.A., right? right? People care very deeply about their faith in Utah uh, in general, uh, just because, you know, it's 90 percent LDS, and so I worry about performing in front of a crowd in Utah doing jokes about our faith that they won't agree with because it doesn't quite click. You know, I need to know. I don't know if I want to find that out at Dry Bar is what I'm saying. No, I I'm actually I'm actually going to St. George, perform in St. George for a couple of shows with Kim McVicker. So we'll see how that goes. If that goes well. Then It'll I'm going to, I'm going to send a tape to dry bar immediately. If it doesn't, then I'm going to be glad I haven't yet sent a tape to dry bar. I mean, I've done a ton of Irish shows and I've done a ton of Jewish shows. And my yeah. experience with, with all those shows uh, is, you know, there is also the sense of someone who 
is familiar with the culture coming in and pointing out things that everyone has seen but not noticed. Right. And there's there's that real sense of like, ah, we do that. Yeah. You know? And because it's someone who's us, we're not offended. Right. And that's the aspect I need to work really, I think, work on yeah. tapping into. Yeah. Because because the, the thing is, if I went into Provo and did all your bits about Mormons, right, uh, people would genuinely be upset because they'd be like, <laughs> who the f- is this New York guy who's not Mormon coming in and making a polygamy joke as his opener? Right. But, but if you're like, hey, I'm a Mormon, then yeah. that, that really gives you this mental free pass to say a lot. I mean, obviously, if you start talking about Joseph Smith, if you right. start talking about the big statue of Jesus in front of his planet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, the Christus, like, baby. Yeah. Any of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, there are aspects they don't find that, that I... Funny. They do not right. find that funny, man. That is... Right, <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think for the... Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm excited to see how St. George goes. That'll be right. a very good, I think, exercise for me. When's that? Uh, May 20th and 21st. So you plan to be vaccinated by May 20th and 21st? I mean, I plan to be still socially distant by May 20th and 21st. Sorry, I say that to every comic who tells me their road plan. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I hope I hope all of them are vaccinated by May 20th, 21st. I have nothing against the vaccine. I am just so far down the list of priority individuals. I have never been happier to be an obese asthmatic uh, <laughs> So when are you getting your vaccine? Are you getting it soon? A couple of weeks? Dude, dude, the state of California is so They're just getting the elderly people. Yeah, like, I know. They, they have not vaccinated all their doctors and nurses here yet. So, I, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I understand the, the want, the need to vaccinate kind of that end of the front line. But don't you right. think by now they've already had it? I've waffled back and forth on this because it's like they're taking it the most seriously. They're being the most careful. So maybe they haven't had it and it would right. be good to vaccinate them. But it's also like odds are they've been exposed to it and actually have built up what the vaccine would give them anyway. But I, I, I'm going to tell you, I, I've known people who have gotten it and then gotten it again. Right. Like getting it is no guarantee of, of like permanent... And in fact, they don't even know that the vaccine is going to be a permanent solution either. Yeah, because now you have new strains from yeah. England and yeah. Yeah, like the Beatles Crazy. of... Uh, of uh... But anyway, so I'm also really like, honestly, just here for the here here for the spring, I think, in this apartment. Yeah. Um, and uh, but Dr. Fauci and Joe Biden say April... And I'm willing to hold them to that and see in April where we're at. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hope that's it. Part of it is the it. Previous, previous administration only purchased 100 million doses. Yeah. For a nation of more than 100 million people. Right. Well, I mean, I think they figured by that point, most people have had it and survived. So. And I'm going to tell you something else, which is there are some people in this town who have a lot of money, who have very quietly gone and gotten themselves vaccinated, who are not high on the priority list. Yeah. But, uh, you know, especially if you can afford a concierge doctor. 
You're, you were saying that all these people making movies and TV have been vaccinated, or a lot of them at the top have been vaccinated? Some of them. Some of them. But yeah. you know, they've never officially said it. I mean, but look, as, as a friend of mine once said, L.A. is a factory town, but yeah. the business, the, the product is, is show business. So, yep. um, but look, I got to go to the bathroom. I think it's... Hey, man. And we've been talking for a good while. I appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're a busy Dude, guy. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad we waited till this week, actually, when you didn't have to talk to Jamie Kennedy afterwards, because we were able to really get into it a little bit. It was great. Um, yeah, it worked yeah, out perfectly, I thought. I, I love the discussion. And I miss seeing you, Liam. I miss seeing you out there. Uh, you, know? you know what? You'll see me in person one day, and you'll be like, ah, that's overrated. <laughs> that I didn't miss him. I mean, um, maybe, but I doubt it. You're the voice of a generation, Liam. We need you. <laughs> I am the Papa Hemingway of comedy. <laughs> I have to remember that. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. All right, man. I got to go to the bathroom, so uh, I'm going to sign off. Thank you for having me on the Absolutely. show. Absolutely. Thank brother. you. Thank you, Liam. All, All right, right. You man. take care, bud. Talk to you soon. Bye.